This is Bonjour Chai, the Schwitzing in August edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, here to tell you that we're all taking a small summer break, but fear not, we have two segments for your listening pleasure. Alana sat down recently with the boy chicks from Yidlife Crisis, but first off, we are re-airing an interview from last summer with acclaimed environmental activist Sipora Berman. We felt it was important to replay this due to another summer filled with climate catastrophes across the continent. I myself was just in Kentucky and there was severe flooding there that led to several deaths. There are wildfires in Newfoundland and heat waves both here and across the globe. Folks, climate change is real and we can't think of a better climate prophet than Sipora. Thank you and catch you all soon. I want to start with, um, you know, just, you know, where do you think uh, we we are at this point in time in 2021? Just give us sort of a, a spotlight, a lens um, that we can move fr- forward to, from. Well, we're all experiencing it. I mean, whether you live in British Columbia or not, uh, it's impossible now and on any part of the globe uh, not to have uh, felt some weird or extreme weather um, at at best, and at worst, not to know family members that have had to flee from fires, from floods, from droughts, uh, from extreme weather. We're we're living in a moment uh, where um, more people lose their homes today as a result of climate change than war, where the greatest threat um, now to human health, including the pandemic we have just experienced, um, is in part um, either made worse or because Uh, of our changing climate. So we're living in this moment where literally every ton of carbon matters. And, you know, climate change is complicated. But what's not complicated is that it comes from three products, oil, gas, and coal. They're trapped in our atmosphere, they're blanketed in the earth, and they're smothering us. And and we need to change uh, how we use those products. Totally. Um, I know that there was some recent announcement about um, electric cars being something that will be more enforced. My mom sent it to me, so I'm not sure if it was just in Quebec. I'm not going to lie. I'm not an expert when it comes to environmentalism. I try to stay up to date on what I hear. Um, So I do have a a lot of questions around that um, in terms of what can we do as, as, as someone or if other people are listening who don't feel like they're experts on environmentalism but want to make a change what are the little things that we can do in our in our day to day that uh, help with these problems? Is it changing to electric cars? Um, what are other other things that we can do? Well, there, there's no question that that um, changing our lifestyles is important. You know, if you have the ability to buy an electric car um, instead of a fossil fuel car, you could. You should. It, it also makes sense um, because it, you're right. Canada is going to be banning the fossil fuel car. Um, they say uh, the federal government says by 2035. Many countries around the world are doing that. Um, and so electric cars are going to get uh, more prevalent and, and cheaper. And that's great. But, you know, this at this point, you know, scientists call what we're living in right now a climate emergency. And when you're in an emergency, it's not just about whether you buy better cars or better light bulbs. It's about better laws. If we are going to make the world safe for our children, for our grandchildren, if we're going to ensure that we're not just limping from one disaster to another, this flood, that heat dome, that wildfire, then um, then we actually need to change our laws so that we build new and different infrastructure to keep people safe. The good news is that now renewable energy is actually cheaper than fossil fuels in most parts of the world. 
battery storage is way better. But so if you're thinking about one thing that you can do, I think the most important thing that people can do is pick up the phone, call their MLA or their MP or write a letter because we need our elected officials to know that this is the issue that matters to us, that they have our support if they act and if they don't, that there'll be consequences. So I guess I I was going to start with something more personal, but I I guess I want to go in a more global direction based on what you're just saying. One of the things that I notice, um, and I want your take on this, is that there are many, um, you know, we're a Jewish podcast, you're Jewish, we're Jewish, I want to talk about that for a bit. There are many uh, Jews involved uh, as activists in this sphere and in many other spheres in Canada. Um, And yet, we don't really see much in the way of organized, combined, collective activism from within the Jewish community um, as a Jewish entity. Um, I know Shorish exists um, in Toronto, but I can tell you that as of last week, I didn't know that that existed. And I've been involved with Chazon in the US and many other organizations for 15 years. Um, why do you think that, you know, we can talk about the, the Jews as individuals, um, but yet we don't really see a lot of collective action when this really can and should be a fundamentally Jewish uh, topic? You know, I, I'm really not sure. I mean, I meet a lot of uh, Jewish leaders in, in, in the climate movement and climate policy and in, in, in governments around the world. Um, But I really have been surprised that I don't see more organized work on these issues, um, you know, from from Jewish institutions. And, you know, I I wonder if it's because for so many decades, our governments and the fossil fuel companies themselves have tried to make it seem like this is not an issue of collective action. It's an issue of individual action. It's about what you buy. It's about what you whether or not you're responsible in your home. Um, Because then the onus is kind of off them. And there's a lot of, um, I'm also an academic, there's a lot of academic research and and studies right now showing how the fossil fuel industry has made us kind of feel guilty about this. It's our fault because we use oil, we we heat our cars, we heat our homes with gas, and and therefore, um, you know, it's kind of our fault. We have a duplicity. So people think that the only thing they can do is change their own collective action or their own lifestyle you know, their own personal responsibility. And maybe that's why it hasn't Mm. moved into collective action in a lot of places. But it actually really does surprise me. I mean, as a, you know, as a Jew, we're taught, we are all Shomri Adama, we are guardians of the earth, you know, in in the Midrash, it's it's clear that we are custodians, not owners, that that our sacred responsibility is tikkun olam. And what does that mean? That not just that we have to protect, but that we have a responsibility to to repair the world. And 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 so I, you know, I take that very seriously. And I and I think it's part of what, you know, fuels me. And you know, the thing that I'm actually also has always been a quandary for me is that I grew up with a sense of community and collective responsibility more than a lot of my friends, and it was because of our Jewish community. You know, I, I I grew up going going to synagogue and 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 you know and as a teenager, um, uh, in in USY I was USY president I was you know, <laughs> and we volunteered we volunteered at our synagogue with seniors I volunteered with the the kids doing services and um, and and so I I feel like we do have a culture of volunteering and participating in our communities but um but I'm quite dismayed to see the lack of collective Jewish action on climate change actually it needs to change but every day is a new day was that correlation always very clear to you between your Jewish identity and your 
activism or your environmentalism? Or is that something that you started to recognize was more linked as you got older and learned more? It definitely was as I got older and and learned more. Um, you know, in some ways, I think I turned away in my teens or early 20s uh, from my practice and, and, and my community. I, I think it was in part because I didn't see what I a lot of the things that I was learning to really care about um, in in my community, and it's as I it's as I've gotten older that I've that I've come back to it that I've really, like it. There was a practice growing up of as I said of being a part of community and, and engaging with my community, but not necessarily as environmentalism. And it's as I got older as I've gotten older and looked and looked at the teachings and think and thought actually it's right here. It's all right here for us. Yeah, I imagine there's not a lot of USY uh, presidents that went logging, you know, in their twenties to to BC. <laughs> Uh, Wait, to be clear, I didn't go logging. I went to blockade logging. That's what I meant. I I was thinking tree planting, and then I don't know why I said logging. Yeah, yes. Um, But yeah, it's... um it's really shocking to me because like, you know, you talk about this as the, as the Tikkun Olam piece and I see so many sources and there's so many books about this. It's to me and I helped write a curriculum on Jews and food and sustainability with Chazon years ago. And I, oh. I um, if there's one topic that there is a pl- like really a, so much written about, I, I see this on Judaism and vegetarianism, but I see it on Judaism and climate change as well, um, that the sustainability is there. We talk about Baltashrit, right? There's a, it's not even the Midrash. There's a biblical source that says that when you besiege a city, we're not going to talk about the good or the bad in that. Um, you're not allowed to cut down the fruit bearing trees because just for, you know, the sake of, you know, uh, punishing whoever's being besieged because you're not or or for battering rams or anything like that because fruit bearing trees actually provide us with something and the analog to me where Mm -hmm. we go and say Mm -hmm. we're cutting down trees for catalogs like with your victoria's secret activism or any other really stupid things that we do um just so that we can cut down those trees but where they're providing us not so much with fruit but with um carbon sinks and um you know everything else that comes along with the benefit of having so many trees, right? This is a biblical commandment to do this. I, I had a rabbi teach me, do a teaching once where he said that it's uh, it's a biblical prohibition based on this to drive an SUV because you should be, if you have to drive a car, you should be able to drive a smaller car and not waste as much gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much around this and yet we, um, and there's so many countries in, in America, we see so much of the stuff happening here, um, but there's so many countries where this isn't happening. There's so many places, especially in Canada, where we don't see this as a community moving forward. And in the future, I think our communities are going to matter so much more um, even than they do today. Um, because when you're in a when you're in a situation where it's um, where you're in danger, where your, com- your, your community is important, you know, if, if if you have no power, if you have no water, if if um, if you're if you're in the middle of a heat dome and some of your neighbors are elderly, um, your community matters. And it really, living through the heat dome uh, these last couple of weeks in British Columbia really reminded me of that, really made me think. It made me go knock on some doors and check and see if people were okay. You know, 700 people died in a four-day period in British Columbia. Um, and, and, and the uh, doctors and medical professionals are saying it's in large part because of heat exhaustion and, and and we're seeing that all over the world. It's the most vulnerable that are first impacted uh, by climate change. And so your community is, is even more important. And so we need activism in our communities in order to stop the expansion 
of fossil fuels to, to push our governments to shift to the infrastructure that we need for renewable energy and safer, cleaner systems. But we also need to be thinking about how are we going to adapt to this changing climate because the climate is now changing. We're in it now. This isn't theory anymore. We're in, we're living um, in the climate era, in a changing climate. And the, and the, really the only question left in front of us is how much and how fast. Yeah. Something that blew my mind as someone who's also living in BC is just how badly our infrastructure is made for some, like a heat wave of that capacity mm -hmm. and how our houses, like my house wasn't air conditioned. We had to move to my roommate's mother's place who also didn't have an air conditioned house, but for some reason, the way her house was positioned was cooler. And mm -hmm. we were dipping our feet in like a baby swimming pool outside with fans blowing on us. Um, so I, to be honest, when I was in the thick of the heat wave, it was so intense that I wasn't even looking at the news. I was so overwhelmed by the heat that all I was thinking about was protecting the people around me. And then after it started dipping down, I was looking at the news and I was like, oh my God, people died from this. I mean, it makes sense. And then the whole thing in Lytton. So I... I wonder if now in BC, is that something that that's coming up in conversation around protecting our elders and uh, people at risk about changing things like air conditioning or um, other ways of making sure that if another big heat wave happened again, that that wouldn't occur to that degree? You know, I think it's starting. Um, but um, we have as humans uh, an, an amazing ability uh, to adapt, to see situations as the new normal, and then just go on with our daily lives. There is a, a, an enormous amount of uh, enormous amount written in climate psychology, talking about how um, people kind of adapt and turn away from it. And I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about how the most important thing we can do, or maybe the first step right now, is having the courage to face it, to understand the state of the world, the climate emergency, to be talking about it, to not let us just go back to our daily lives until the next disaster. I mean, you know, I, I was horrified, of course, as everyone was, you know, last year to see thousands fleeing from the fires in California that just wreaked havoc yeah. or the floods in Miami. And now, and now what's happening? They're rebuilding apartment buildings in flood zones in Miami. You know, people are, 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 are shifting and moving slightly, but rebuilding those same towns and, 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 and we're still, um, you know, drilling for more oil and, 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 and fracking in California. I think there's a parallel here as Jews. You know, I grew up with my bubby telling me stories of how my family escaped the pogroms in, in Poland. You know, how my, you know I, I grew up with my neighbor down the street telling me how she got the number on her forearm in Auschwitz. Both talked about how lucky I was, how our families had struggled and fought for the freedom we have today and were taught as Jews never to forget. You know, we're, 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 we're taught not to take our freedoms for granted, that we have to have the courage to face what's happened and make sure it can never happen again. And I... And I think um, sometimes all of this feels too big. It's invisible sometimes. It's scary. We're too small. I'm just one person, and we turn away. And I, and I think that, you know, just like millions around the world turned away during World War II. And I, I think we have to have the courage to face what's happen, happening, you know, never forget. And we can't afford climate silence. We can't afford to turn away. And that has to be our practice right now. We have to say to people, look, it's not just about adapting to wildfires, getting more firefighters. 
It's about how are we going to stop this from getting worse and how are we going to protect our communities? It's, it's interesting the analogy you bring up, um, and it has me thinking now, you know, that as a community, you know, we're focused and we've spoken on our program often about anti-Semitism in the community and, and, and the way the community feels about it. It's hard to point a finger, right, at, at the climate and say, oh, the climate hates the Jews, right, because, because it's this thing, it's this entity. And so it almost feels like we don't have a response to it in the same sort of way to go and say, well, we have to go and fix this um, because it's mm-hmm. just this amorphous thing. And, and as you say, we're, one, we're, we're such a small segment of the population that it doesn't really matter. Um, and I'm always struck, right, in that vein um, by the, the tension between the individual and the, you know, and, and the larger picture where I'm, I, I, I'm of the belief, and maybe you can tell me that I'm wrong, that even if everybody was a perfect, perfect citizen, drove an electric car, composted, put out very few, very little garbage, um, did everything the way that they were supposed to, made sure that their energy usage was very, very, very moderate and everything was perfect. We still wouldn't make a real dent in it. And yet if the top 10, you know, corporations that were polluters and, you know, fossil fuel users um, were to significantly reduce, then everything would shift around and that it's really about larger corporations. And I, I see that in the work that you do with at, you know, targeting larger corporations and not necessarily as much the individuals. Um, how do we deal with that at the, like, we're a, we're a community, but we're a small community um, in relation to the rest of the country, um, but yet we're a leading voice in certain places. Do, do you see where that tension lies? And I wonder if you can address that. Well, as a community, we and our and Jewish institutions advocate for better laws and policies. We do. We advocate for better for laws and policies that affect Israel. We advocate for laws and policies um, that affect our daily lives all, all the time. Yeah, but that's what that's my point, right? Is that we look at things that are self-interesting, and and as a community, we don't necessarily think about the climate as something which is self-interesting specifically to the Jewish community. And and we need to. It, it, it is to it is to every community. Um, but as Jews, look, we know one of the commandments is to protect our children, to give them a better world. Our children are scared. They are marching in the streets. We all want to tell them it will be okay. Um, but right now we can't. We can't honestly tell them that their future is not going to be way more difficult and way more painful right now because of the trajectory that we're on. So we, we, we have a responsibility to have the strength to face it. And that, and that means collectively advocating uh, for our government to do more. I mean, right now in Canada, we have the worst record on climate change, meaning our pollution, how much we pollute right now as a nation, predominantly because of oil and gas production. So this isn't even fossil fuels that we're using. It's not people in Canada using it. We're producing it and we're exporting it. Just from that production, that's the largest source of our pollution of our greenhouse gas emissions today in this country. And we have the worst record of any G7 country right now. And for two decades, we've had governments that are promising us climate change policies. They're promi- even the Trudeau government has promised greater targets right now. And yet uh, our pollution has not gone down. Our emissions have not gone down. Whereas a lot of other countries have already put in place really good policies, on uh, stronger policies on renewable energy. The UK has an amazing policy on a carbon budget. So we have targets in Canada, but we have no budget. It's like saying, yeah, I aspire (laughs) to only spend this much, but I have no budget to track it. Well, we have no budget to track it in this country. And so we're doing really poorly. 
And so, you know, it's not rocket science. We need to demand of our governments. And when we vote, we need to demand of all parties and make a decision based on which party is going to do the best on climate change. We have to start prioritizing that. And a lot of people I talk to, you know, talk about how it's, well, we also have to prioritize having a stable economy. What many people don't realize is that it's entirely linked. World economy is moving off fossil fuels. That much is clear. All the major banks have now have policies not to invest and support in the expansion of oil, gas, or coal. M you know, many countries around the world have even stronger policies on electric cars, renewables, etc. All the trends uh, show that a stronger economy is going to be one that has put in place measures to use more renewable energy than fossil fuels and to adapt to a changing climate. And so Canada right now is, is, is really behind on that. And so these, these issues are linked. And, and, and so we, we really have got to be advocating to our governments to do more. That's the bottom line. So if our listeners want to take action, do you have any resources that you would recommend, whether it's an organization or a website or anything that might provide um, a guideline to uh, what to include in, in such a letter if they wanted to write to their MP or, or write to a higher um, authority. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there isn't an environmental group in this country who's not doing something on climate change. And we're, we're, we have a lot of great organizations in this country, actually. So I, I work with stand.earth, easy to find online, stand.earth. We run a number of campaigns. Every single climate campaign we run, we first of all do the scientific research and provide it to all of our members. Uh, you can join up and be a member for free. Um, and then every time we run a campaign, we also do a draft letter or a petition. So you can literally just go online, click here, edit it how you want. And when you click, it gets sent to your MP or your MLA by giving, you know, because you give your postal code. That's the same for other environmental groups. I, I think in Toronto, we've got a great one in environmental defense. Um, you know, there's a number of amazing environmental groups across the country. And I think people need to really look at take a look at them, take the time to decide which one speaks to you. Um, but for me, those are two that, that come to mind. I, I follow environmental defense's work. I work every day uh, with Stand.Earth, and they'll provide people the information that they need. Can, can you shout out any of the uh, Jewish climate activists that you mentioned at the top that you are aware of that are doing the great work out there in Canada? There's so many. Um, but I, I, you know, I think, well... Probably one of my great heroes in the U.S. is Susan Casey Lefkowitz. She she runs all the global programs for the Natural Resources Defense Council. I think she's um, absolutely amazing. Uh, well, I think in 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 Canada, of course, um, very excited to have. Well, we'll see how the politics go. But a Green Party leader that is a a, a strong Jewish woman, Anna Mae Paul. You know, and and I think um, really I. I'm hesitating in part because I've made a commitment to myself because of the need for reconciliation in Canada and decolonization that the majority of times when I'm lifting up other people, I'm really, really trying to lift up Indigenous voices in Canada. Um, and, and, so I, and so, yes, there are a lot of great Jewish activists in this country, but I would also say um, uh, it would be, it's really important for, uh, I think, um, for all of us uh, to be looking at and lifting up the work of Indigenous activists in this country. There's an amazing climate group um, that just started a couple of years ago called Indigenous Climate Action, ICA. They just wrote a great paper analyzing Canada's climate policy. And some of the women who work there, Ariel Derringer um, and Melina Lubkon-Massimo, are, are some of my great heroes. 
um, in this country working on climate change. So I do, I, you know, I acknowledge that and I think it's important, but I want to point out and I will, you know, I'll double down on this, that there are many Jews um, that won't lift a finger until they see that it is a Jewish cause. Um, and that is a target that we have to be focusing on in a big way, um, you know, to, to remind people that this is, you know, not just a cause that affects Jews. This is a cause that has deep roots in Jewish sources, in historical and contemporary Jewish ideas, and that we need to really um, recognize that this is not just an issue for Jews, but this is a Jewish, um, you know, you know, idea. And this is uh, something that is urgent for the Jewish community as Jews um, to be looking at. And if we don't point that out, there's a lot of people that are just going to say, great, that's, you know, it's important that we have that. I recycle, I do my thing, but but I'm not really going to fight for it. Um, and we need to be having those voices, up, you know, uplifted. And we need these, these campaigns to not just come from, you know, these climate activist um, organizations, but they need to be coming from Jewish organizations as well. Yeah, no, it's, it is a really good point. Sipora, thank you so much for your time and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for having me. I recently had the chance to sit down with the Yidlife Crisis duo, Jamie Elman and Ellie Battalion, to talk about their new show coming to Cote St. Luke in Montreal next month called A Closer Luke. It is a live variety show featuring comedy, video, music, and thought-provoking shtick inspired by the history and roots of Cote St. Luke. They got a grant from the Montreal Arts Council to create it, and I asked them a bit about what inspired them to create this project and what was the story behind it. Uh, so first off, it's called The Closer Luke. 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 Cote St. Luke. Like Inspector Cluzo. Pronunciation, please. I'll work on uh, and note the accent circumflex on the O in closer. That's very important and should figure into your pronunciation of the name as well. Mm-hmm. Well, look, um, Code St. Luke is, uh, is home in our hearts. No matter how far and wide in the world that we go, Code St. Luke has indelibly left its uh, imprint on us. And uh, for a while, we've been getting more and more involved in uh, what we call global shtetl projects, where we take a look at a particular corner of the Jewish world. And, uh, you know, semi recently, we went back and looked at Montreal in general, which was our backyard, but -hmm. we never went into our hyper local backyard, which is in fact, Cote St. Luke proper. And all this time, we've had all sorts of things that we wanted to share all of our comedy, and all of our inside jokes, the vast majority emanate from Cote St. Luke, but never really the opportunity to share it because it was always considered a little bit too niche. Whereas now, uh, we finally have an opportunity to do something on a hyper-local level and be able to present it for uh, a Code St. Luke audience and, of course, anyone else that dares come into Code St. Luke uh, to show, in fact, how much uh, flavor and culture and arts there really is in Code St. Luke, uh, and which we're doing at the Howard Greenspan Theater, that we, we have a fantastic theater in Code St. Luke and we have uh, all sorts of arts going on. So it's our tribute to Code St. Luke in specific, uh, which uh, it was due time for. And Jamie, do you want to tell me a bit about uh, why the variety show uh, way of approaching it as opposed to doing, uh, I don't know, uh, a talk or showcasing it in the way that you have on your series? 
Uh, sure. Well, that that comes down to the fact that after, uh, you know, seven, eight years of doing live shows now, we realize that people's attention spans don't last longer than about 95 seconds. In fact, I doubt anybody is listening to this right now. But um, a variety show allows us to um, fire on a few different cylinders. We get, we're going to show some video that we're creating, especially for the event, which people know us for our video, but we're also musicians. I play piano. Ellie plays guitar. We're going to sing some songs. Oh, fun. Um, but mostly it's to keep uh, people from falling asleep every three minutes. Fair enough. And is this going to be a video that will be accessible for others to watch after the event is done? Is it going to go up uh, online? No comment. Next question. <laughs> Ellie, how is that? Is that a good answer? <laughs> I guess diplomatic, sort of. Um, um, too soon to say. Okay. I jumped Maybe. the gun a bit. Yeah. All right. I don't know yet. We've got to see that we haven't made the video yet, so we can't tell you that. And uh, I've noticed in, in a lot of your videos, you do have those little nods to Code St. Luke, an image that really stands out to me is in the one where it starts out, where it looks like you're at the Western Wall, and then it zooms out and it's Cavendish Mall. So these are only things that someone who knows the neighborhood or grew up in Montreal or Code St. Luke would know. Do you have people who, you know, have come to you from the videos that you've created and said, wow, I learned so much? Or does that like fly over a lot of people's heads? uh yeah we do I, in fact have people learning uh stuff from what we do in general uh whether or not they've learned about that particular Cavendish mall of the Cavendish <laughs> mall I don't know although the reality with the Cavendish mall is that we found a certain universality because as you can imagine if you live in uh, Montclair New Jersey or, or Long Island or uh you know uh the San Fernando Valley there is the equivalent of the Cavendish mall everywhere in the world so I think everyone gets it at that level. But no, in terms of the general reaction to the project, beneath the comedy, there is some edutainment, as we like to call it. And we do get those comments. Mm -hmm. And it's, in fact, the most rewarding types of comments that we get. And some of the most interesting are actually when they're not from Jews. Uh, but uh, very often they will be, for example, from someone that's uh, in a, in a uh, an intermarriage mm -hmm. uh, that uh, is, is learning about Judaism or whatnot and considers this to be, in fact, one of the better probably one of the funnier vehicles for learning about Judaism and Jewish culture. Hmm. And whatnot. So That's yeah, cool. we do, we do get that. And, and that, that's certainly a rewarding part of the Yid Life voyage. Very fun. And so uh, before you jumped on, uh, I found out, so Jamie is now based in LA and Ellie, are you still Montreal in the home turf? Uh, very, very much so. Very much so. Yes. So I'll direct this at Jamie then. What do you miss most about Montreal? Oh, winter. Definitely winter. Um, potholes. Uh, driving. Uh, language laws. Um, uh, the Habs losing. Uh, wait, what was the question? <laughs> oh, what do I miss? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, my family. The smoked meat. Okay. And the orange julep, not necessarily in that order. Okay. And uh, if you only had to go to one hotspot, I'll give this to both of you, even though you're still here, Ellie. One hotspot in the city for food, because I know food's a big part of your Yid life culture. Uh, what would it be? A Montreal food hotspot, if you can only pick one. Jamie? Oh my, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as only one. We can't, we can't, no, I, 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 I refuse. Uh, I don't know, I'll have a turkey sandwich at Caldwell. How's that? Um, on, on, a, on a fresh color roll, give me some mustard. You know, I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna name one of the restaurants because I love them all too much. 
How about you, Ellie? That's very diplomatic. I mean, I'm trying to contextualize your question, the hypothetical world in which only one is possible, which to me sounds like a nuclear apocalypse. Which restaurant would I want? All right, to- which one would you want to go to yeah. first? If you like, you were out of in town a for a while apocalypse? and you're like, where am I, where am I going first? I would say, okay, within the first, like the half-life of the radiation, uh, probably Snowden, Delhi, because I feel like thing I, I could cover a variety of meals there. Like if I had to live, I, I'm basically rephrasing the question as what restaurant would I live at? Okay. And I think mm, yes. that first of all, Hart would make me a nice little, he'd make a nice little bed in the corner for me, uh, providing bowl, you know, usually for a dog, you provide a bowl of water. I, he'd be a bowl of carnazzol that he would provide for me on the floor. And then I could sample various different types of meals for, for different times of the day. I think it'd be a great way to go out in the apocalypse. Just I agree. I, and you know what, Ellie, also, you could use those carnotsels. If you leave them out for a few days, they could actually be insulation against some of the nuclear wreckage or some of the, or the fallout. That's I, a good point. The, True, yeah. except that I would be tempted to eat them and then they would all- You would, you would, yeah, you would eat. Yeah, you'd eat your way through the carnoxal wall mm-hmm. and to expose yourself to the radiation. But at the other side, you have you had good carnoxal on the way right, out. Right, right. So, you know. Not nothing. Net win, net win. Yeah, I think we need stuff. to let, I think we need to let the listeners uh, weigh in on this and send us what their thoughts are on this topic. Um, sure. So my last question before we wrap up is uh, what's up next for you after the, the show in Code St. Luke, A Closer Luke? What can we look forward to for your life crisis? Well, I'm not, we would never tell anyone to look forward to anything that we do. Or for, for that that's matter, very Jewish, forward, that's a very Jewish look, approach. Look out for. Look out for. Is better. Okay, sure, let's rephrase. Um, no, we, we, um, we, we were fi- finally um, getting back out on the road uh, doing our live shows, which uh, we really enjoyed doing and which obviously uh, the past few years have been hard to do. But we're back out. We're going to do some shows in Florida coming up in uh, September. And we're out in Hartford coming up after that and New York after that. So we're basically uh, uh, back to our uh, regular touring schedule, uh, Halavai. Um, And we also, of course, hope to get some new video content out for the, and I use this term loosely, fans. You could tell them that I air quoted my own uh, fans there for that. But um, yeah, we hope to try and put some some something out maybe around uh, Rosh Hashanah. Well, A Closer Look premieres at the Cote Luke Library on August 17th, and it is free. We'll put the registration link in the show notes. Ellie, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the weekend of August 12th, Shabbat Parashat Va'et Hanan. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Zach Kaufman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai so they too can join the Frozen Chosen. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca.